In Britain's long and twisting story, maybe none is more bizarre than the story of how a German family ended up sitting on the throne of Britain. The Royal House of Hanover were to rule for 187 years, making them the second longest dynasty in English history after the Plantagenets. And for over 100 years, four successive kings were called George. They were to oversee the last major land battle ever fought on British soil, the conquest of India and Canada, the loss of the American colonies, victory over Napoleonic France, the birth of the industrial and indeed agricultural revolutions, the arrival of Britain's canal system and its first steam locomotives. They were to see the luxuriant John Nash style buildings showing off Britain's growing wealth, a wealth based on an ever-growing empire and unfortunately also upon the slave trade. But that industrialization also caused immense social and economic hardship, which built a clamor for reform, not just of living conditions, but also of the way Britain was ruled too. And in this volatile world, the whiff of revolution was in the air. Welcome to the story of the Georgians. Now, I'm going to produce an episode on the growth of Britain's empire, uh, the American War of Independence, and also on slavery. I'm also going to do ones on the Napoleonic Wars, the Industrial Revolution, and the growth of working class democracy uh, through into the 19th century. So this particular episode introduces you to the whole period that we call the Georgian period. And I'll only refer briefly to the events and the topics that are coming up in those other videos, okay? So this video simply sets the scene for what comes afterwards. If you recall from my previous episode, King James II of England had been ousted from the throne by his Protestant daughter and her husband, Mary and William, in 1688. Deposed in this so-called glorious revolution, James didn't quietly go into the night. The following year, he personally led a military attempt to regain the throne by invading Ireland with French support. And at the same time, his Jacobite supporters in Scotland also staged an uprising under John Graham, Viscount Dundee. Both attempts were defeated and James lived out the rest of his days in the court of his cousin, Louis XIV of France. Parliament in England were conscious that the Jacobite threat was still out there, not least in the form of James's son, also called James, James Francis Edward Stuart, who became known as the Old Pretender. Parliament's fears were compounded by the fact that William and Mary failed to produce an heir. Mary's sister, Anne, who was also a Protestant, had a son, Prince William, Duke of Gloucester. But he had died at the age 11 in 1700. Anne was now in her mid-thirties and had a history of miscarriages. So even if she was to inherit the throne upon uh, William and Mary's deaths, what would happen upon her death? The obvious answer was that the old pretender would come to the throne. And the whole reason for the glorious revolution would be back again. And so Parliament decided to make sure that that situation did not arise. In 1701, when William was still on the throne, the very year that the old King James II died, Parliament passed an act of succession. Its main provision was that any future monarch must be a member of the Church of England, and that still stands to this day. By that act in 1701, they cut out the Roman Catholic old pretender from the potential line of succession, which was great. 
but who would inherit the crown instead? Well, you have to go up the Stuart family tree to the children of King James I of England. His son, Charles I, was long dead, and so you have to look to his sister, Princess Elizabeth. Now, Princess Elizabeth last appeared in our story of Britain in the episode about the gunpowder plot. So if you recall, the Catholic conspirators were planning to abduct her and install her as a, a puppet monarch. Princess Elizabeth went on to marry a German Protestant prince. Two of her sons, Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice, were to play key roles fighting for their uncle Charles I during the English Civil War. Indeed, Rupert was his main cavalry commander. Rupert was also to play a major role in the Restoration, becoming a key supporter and confidant of his cousin, Charles II. And he was also to invest heavily in various trading concerns, not least the Hudson Bay Company, hence why we have Prince Rupert's land in Canada, and unfortunately also in the Royal Africa Company, which traded in gold, ivory and slaves. Indeed, as the eldest male offspring of Princess Elizabeth, Rupert could have been in the line of succession, but he had died in 1682 without any legitimate heir children. Morris had died long before that, and other members of the family had married into Catholic uh, families, which made them null and void according to the Act of Succession. However, one sister remained, Sophia, the Electress of Hanover. Hanover was a tiny princely state in Germany. There wasn't a united Germany at this time. It was a hodgepodge of smaller duchies and kingdoms and princedoms, one of which was this tiny state called Hanover. Sophia was now 70, but she was still going strong, and she was a Protestant, and she had a Protestant son. Meanwhile, back in England, Anne had succeeded to the throne in 1702, and the English Parliament named the ageing Sophia as her heir. But the Scottish Parliament demurred. Don't forget that the two countries, England and Scotland, were still separate, despite sharing the same monarchs for the last 100 years. Just because the English Parliament had named Sophia as the heir, the Scots didn't feel obliged to follow suit. Their Parliament announced that they would choose their own heir to Queen Anne, who may or may not be Sophia. Relations between the two Parliaments and the two countries went downhill, with England actually placing economic sanctions on Scotland. And eventually, under pressure from England, the Scots agreed to form a single Parliament to govern both countries. Whilst the issue of the succession wasn't the only reason for that unification, it was probably the key lever. The Act of Union of 1707 gave birth to the country of Great Britain. Seven years later, in 1714, Queen Anne died. Unfortunately, Sophia had passed away just seven weeks beforehand. And thus the crown passed to her son, George, the elector or prince of the German Principality of Hanover. The Stuart dynasty was at an end, and the House of Hanover had arrived. In his 50s, with no affinity to Britain and with a rudimentary command of the English language, George was at least a Protestant. Hooray! Not that the Jacobite supporters were celebrating. As far as they were concerned, the wrong man was, sitting on the, was, was wearing the crown. And in Scotland, they rose in rebellion. But even in the homeland of the Stuarts, their support was lukewarm for the old pretender. The Jacobites did, however, manage to raise an army. They captured the city of Perth before invading England. If there was little support for their cause in Scotland, there was even less 
in England. Arriving at Preston in Lancashire, uh, they barricaded themselves in the town and after a couple of days of street fighting, they surrendered to government forces. Some say that Preston, rather than Sedgemoor, is the last battle on English soil, but technically it was more of a siege than a, than a set-piece battle. Anyway, let's come back out of that rabbit hole. George ruled, George I ruled for the next 12 years. Remember that the, the whole glorious revolution thing back in 1688 had been the part of this, this long-running Parliament versus Crown power struggle, as well as a sectarian division as well. King George I's disinterest in his new kingdom helped tilt that balance of power even more firmly towards Parliament. In 1716, Robert Walpole became the first Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor, the two main posts in the government. And George I was happy to let Walpole conduct the day-to-day -day business of running the country, especially as he was, uh, as the King, was often over in Germany looking after his interest in Hanover. And thus, by default, parliamentary supremacy was entrenched. Walpole was to remain the first Lord of the Treasury for 20 years, and was rightly seen as the person in charge of the government, or the Prime Minister. Whilst he's now officially recognised as the first British Prime Minister, the term didn't come into use for some time. And to this day, the British Prime Minister also holds the office of First Lord of the Treasury. When George I died in 1727, he was succeeded by his son, who became George II of Great Britain, as well as also inheriting Hanover over in Germany. It was George II who gifted the residence of 10 Downing Street to Robert Walpole, and it remains the residence of the First Lord of the Treasury, aka the Prime Minister, to this day. George II was also the last British monarch to personally lead his troops into battle against the French during the War of the Austrian Succession. During the 18th century, Britain had her share of wars with France, not just in Europe, but also in North America and India too. But two years after he'd led his troops into battle, George II was faced with a conflict much closer to home. Despite their defeat in 1715, the Jacobites still haven't given up their claim to the British throne. James Francis Edward Stuart, the old pretender, was now in his 50s, and whilst not willing to take the war to the Hanoverians, his son certainly was. Charles Edward Stuart became known as the Young Pretender, but history remembers him by another name, Bonnie Prince Charlie. In 1745, he landed in the Scottish Highlands and raised his standard with the intention of marching south to reclaim the lost throne for his father. Rather like the Jacobite Rising 30 years previously, Scotland, all of Scotland didn't rally to his cause. The Scottish Lowlands, where the cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh are, um, were strongly Presbyterian or Protestant, and were about as keen on having a Catholic monarch being restored as the English Protestants were. Nevertheless, Bonnie Prince Charlie was able to gather a, an army of Highlanders and marched into Edinburgh unopposed, and then inflicted a stunning defeat on the government forces at nearby Preston Pans. Over the years, the, the rising of 1745 has often been portrayed as a sort of Scottish bid for independence from England. And whilst many certainly hoped for the dissolution of the Act of Union, in other words, getting back their own parliament, the aim of Bonnie Prince Charlie was to bring about a Stuart restoration on the throne of England 
as well as Scotland. And so he now advanced with his army south towards London, across the border, past Carlisle and into England. Expecting to find a groundswell of that Jacobite support, he was sorely disappointed to see just a trickle of recruits joining his army by the time he'd reached Manchester. Even more disappointing was that the promised French military assistance seemed to be absent too. By now, Bonnie Prince Charlie had reached Derby in the English Midlands, just 120 miles north of London. And it was here that he was told by a government agent that the capital was being heavily fortified to repel him. Actually, this was, as a former United States president might say, fake news, aimed at sowing dissension in his army. The reality was that London was not fortified, and despite the King's son, the Duke of Cumberland, assembling an army, rumours in the capital were rife that George II was about to do a runner, desert the capital, actually desert the country for Hanover. At the Theatre Royal, Drury Lane, the ensemble took to the stage in front of the audience to declare their support for the Hanoverian Protestant monarch, singing a new song, God Save the King. It became the British National Anthem. Up in Derby, Charles Edward Stuart was in conference with his military commanders. The Highland leaders pointedly asked, where were the promised English Jacobite rebels that should have been appearing? And where were the French forces that Charles had promised them? And they forced Charles to order a retreat back to their native Scotland. The Duke of Cumberland's army pursued them as they retraced their steps north. And in the following year, 1746, Cumberland finally cornered Charles Edward Stuart's army outside the highland city of Inverness at the Battle of Culloden. Another enduring myth is that the battle was between Scottish troops loyal to Bonnie Prince Charlie and English troops under Cumberland. The reality was that there were as many Scots in the government army as there were in Bonnie Prince Charlie's. And the government army uh, also consisted of Germans as well as English troops and Scottish whilst both armies had significant numbers of Irishmen in their ranks, so it was a real mixed bag of a battle. In the ensuing Battle of Culloden, the outnumbered Jacobites were heavily defeated, leaving over a thousand of their number dead on the desolate battlefield. Culloden was the last significant battle fought on British soil. Bonnie Prince Charlie fled into a 40-year exile and died in Rome in 1788. And George II retained his crown and reigned for another 14 years. Towards the end of his reign, Britain achieved two notable victories abroad. General Wolfe defeated the French in Quebec, and Robert Clive defeated the Nawab of Bengal and his French allies at the Battle of Plassey in India. These two victories secured British control of North America and India, respectively, building the foundations of the British Empire. King George II died in 1760. His son, Frederick, Prince of Wales, had unfortunately died nine years previously. And so the crown passed to his 22-year-old grandson, who became King George III. King George III is remembered in popular culture as uh, the mad king who lost the American colonies. What is often forgotten is that he was actually a very popular king in Britain, and that with his reign of 60 years, he is actually one of Britain's longest reigning monarchs. He was also the first of the Hanoverian kings to speak English as his first language, and throughout his long reign, he never visited Hanover. He called himself British. Despite the loss of the American War of Independence, 
his reign saw the beginning of Britain's Industrial Revolution. And together with the defeat of Napoleonic France, by the time he reached the end of his reign in 1820, Britain was the foremost naval and industrial power in the world. The 19th century would be Britain's century. George III's later years were marred by his madness, probably actually a blood disease, which made him incapable of ruling. In 1811, Parliament somewhat reluctantly agreed that his son, George, Prince of Wales, should act as a regent. The regency period is marked both by its glamour and its sleaze, personified by the Prince Regent himself. The Prince became a patron of the architect John Nash, who built the Royal Pavilion uh, for the Regent at Brighton. And Nash designed and inspired buildings sprung up across Britain, especially in spa towns like Bath, where the rich gathered for seasons, showing off the latest fashions, attending balls, and hoping to find a suitable partner. Enter Jane Austen, Mr. Darcy et al. The Regency itself ended in 1820, when the old King died and the Prince of Wales ascended to the throne as King George IV. The unashamed extravagance and outlandish behaviour, however, continued into the King's reign. The new King set the standard by spending over £300,000 in those days' money on his coronation. Well, actually, he didn't spend his own money, he spent Parliament's money. Uh, and the coronation is mad. I've done a YouTube video about the coronation, but uh, it was anarchic, including his wife, his estranged wife, Carolina Brunswick, Brunswick, being refused entry to Westminster Abbey for the coronation service itself. This brazen opulence and spendthrift attitude, as exemplified by the king, was in marked contrast to the growing economic hardships that were facing many in the country. The goodwill towards the monarchy built up by his father was being drastically eroded by his son, and many wondered whether the French Revolution, which had only happened, what, 30 years beforehand, shouldn't be repeated in Britain. His passing in 1830 was not mourned by those who saw in him the injustices of a nation of haves and have-nots, and a political system that refused either to bring about change and refused to let them, the working people, in. The clamour for reform, both political and social, was growing, and we're going to talk about that in a future episode. Whilst we tend to call this period the Georgian period, it actually ends with the reign of a William. William IV succeeded his brother in 1830 and ruled for just seven years. When he died in 1837, the crown passed to his niece, the 17-year-old Victoria. And for the rest of the 19th century, Queen Victoria was to preside over arguably Britain's high point of industrial and imperial power. With her ascension to the throne of Britain, the British House of Hanover lost their direct interest in Germany because, as a woman, Victoria wasn't allowed to inherit the ancestral throne over in Hanover. But isn't it interesting to wonder, as one of my old professors at university, Professor Grenville, did, what would have happened if she had inherited the throne of Hanover as well as Britain. Because here's the follow-up question. How would Bismarck have created a unified Germany with a British-ruled principality stuck right in the middle of it? And how would that have played out then in European and world history? <laughs>